Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Just before you listen to today's episode, this is a quick message to remind you that if you like what you hear, you can help support History Hack, which is run entirely by volunteers using our Patreon account. There are links on all of our episodes. Or if a subscription is not your thing, you can also now drop us a line on Kofi, which is just the equivalent of buying us a drink. So if you hear an episode, you like it and you want to chip in just once, then you can do that too. Thank you. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. I'm very excited today. Today I've got with me Mark Baer, who is a professor of Middle Eastern and European history at the London School of Economics and Political Science. He's a prize-winning author on several associated themes, but we're here today to talk about his fantastic new book. It's just an epic, sweeping history of 600 years of the Ottoman Empire. Mark, welcome. Thank you. Welcome. And um, thank you for having me on the show. Oh, I can't wait for this. So we've discussed this and we thought 600 years is a lot to get into one hour of a podcast. Um, because I do everything as a First World War historian that's miserable and bad about the Ottoman Empire and it's all falling apart and it's the sick man of Europe and all the, the sad bit. Um, I think we're going to do instead the rise of the Ottoman Empire today, aren't we? And talk about the glory years um, and all of the great things it achieved. So... But, I, but you, you, you use this phrase, the sick man of Europe. Yes. Now, this is Russian propaganda. It why, is. Why Russian propaganda, we, never. Why should we introduce the Ottomans with Russian propaganda? The, yeah. um, the idea that the Ottomans are the sick man is something that you know about, a lot of people know about. But what I'm interested in that phrase is the second half of the phrase, of Europe. Mm. This, this is what everyone always misses. He was saying... Yes, they, they, in their view, the empire was decrepit, about to collapse, and yep. all the European powers, other European powers could divide it up among themselves. Fair enough, that's where all the literature is. But in my book, I talk about the other half of that phrase, of Europe. And I talk about how actually the Ottomans were of Europe from the 14th century. So that's, that's you know, as an Ottoman historian, we, we often we have to flip things around and change the perspective which also helps us rethink European history as well. It does as well. And it's this kind of Europe is superior to everybody else attitude, which we're, we're just basically going to crap all over today, aren't we? Because we're going to talk about the fact that the Ottoman Empire clearly is not just of Europe. It's massive. Um, so you've started to tell me, really, but why is this book different? When you sold it to your agent or publisher, what was the so what that they want? And why did this story need a rewrite? Well, one thing is that we haven't had a overview of Ottoman history written by an, an actual Ottomanist scholar for 16 years. 
Oh wow. So the last the last great epic sweeping account based on Ottoman sources written by a bona fide you know, scholar of Ottoman history was Caroline Finkel's outstanding Osman's Dream from 2005, mm-hmm. also published by the same press. So they wanted to see, they wanted an update. They wanted to know in the past 15 years, what is the new scholarship? What has been revealed? And also what is my research shown? So it, it wasn't a difficult sell at all. In fact, they had to sell me on writing the book. brilliant I love it so let's go right back because I don't know anything about this the very foundations of what became the Ottoman Empire you describe it as a frontier principality to begin with Um, and this is at the back end of the 13th century is that right that's right although the years are sort of well they're unknown we don't know if this person Osman got his start in the 1250s in the 1290s we don't know much about Osman, the, you know, the, 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 the epic founder of the dynasty. We know about his son, Orhan, and we could date him in the early um, 14th century. But what we now think happened was that the Mongol Empire, which was the greatest empire we know, sweeping across the world, Eurasia, the, autumn, um, the, the Mongols had been moving from east to west, conquering, establishing d- um, different um, appanage, different parts of the empire. They swept into the Middle East and ahead of them, with them, and sometimes fleeing from them were these Turkic peoples. Mm. And we think now that Osman, this epic figure, was probably actually sent by the Mongols ahead of them west, further west into Asia Minor, into what is today Turkey, to continue the, the push, the, the settlement, the, 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 the sweeping movement against the West. That's what we think now. So, so there are sort of, there's this, think of Mongol and Turkic horsemen, um, think about them, they're nomadic. As they move into the Middle East, they become semi-nomadic. They eventually will settle down and they're pushing west against the Byzantine frontier. The Byzantines are, of course, the Eastern Roman Empire. And so it's somewhere in the late 13th century in northwestern Anatolia that Osman begins to settle down and to raid uh, launch you know, military raids against whoever's around him. Mm. Turks, Christians, Armenians, Greeks. And he begins to take these different people along with him, whether they're Christian, whether they're Muslim, whether they're Greek, whether they convert to Islam or not. And they capture a grand total of four castles. Oh, wow. (laughs) There's still four more castles than I've got, to be fair. I don't have any castles either. They capture four castles, and this will be the kernel from which the empire, especially under Osman's son, Orhan, will really begin to expand by settling down, by bringing in many more Christians, also Muslims, to continue the raiding, the predatory raiding, the the attacking settlements, to steal their whatever they have. Eventually, under Orhan, they'll be able to start seizing cities as their armies grow larger and they improve their technology. 
they're able to actually take Byzantine cities. So really the Ottoman Empire is going to set up, uh, begin the early 14th century, really under Orhan, Osman Sam, in, in northwestern Anatolia. What's really interesting for me is already you're talking about Christians and Muslims. People think of the Ottoman Empire as a brown empire. Um, as a Muslim empire, but this whole area has sort of been ravaged by the Crusades, hasn't it? So it really is a melting pot of different cultures and religions. Absolutely. And many, we think of this as a Turkish empire. Mm. Yes, there were Turks. Turks were a major factor in it, in it, but there were also, and when we think of Turks, we think of Turks as being Muslim. Mm. But it's also that we have to think about what that means, because first of all, some of these Turks were actually Christian. So all of the Turks around there were not Muslim. Also, we have to think about it. What's new about my book is how I talk about the kind of Islam that the dynasty supported over the centuries, how it changed over time, and how the Muslims around Osman, some of these characters we wouldn't recognize today mm. as being proper Muslims, people who engage in all kinds of activities, believing that the, the world was ending and they were these mystics and they were able to break all the rules of society in order to be more spiritual and closer to God. So th these kind of people um, are often forgotten about. Have you seen this series on Netflix called, what do they call it in English? They call it Resurrection Erdurul. No, I haven't. Oh, you've got to watch. Well, don't watch or do watch it or don't watch. I'm not. I'm is it painful to watch, but still you've got to. Is it like the crown for me? Uh, well, uh, all wrong, but you just you can't help but watch it. Yes. I mean, <laughs> the costumes, you know, the costumes are fantastic. Absolutely. The um, the camps when they show these these Turkish. This is before the Ottomans, but these these Turkic camps, they've really recreated it well. But what they do, well, there's a lot of violence, so it's not for the, the, the faint. I lost track of how many Christians were killed in the first episode. But the thing about that show, um, um, Resurrection Eterol, is that it shows Osman's um, father's time. It shows it as a clear contest between Muslims, who are exactly like the kind of Muslims you would see in Istanbul today, uh, mm. at the mosque on Friday, versus you know, crusaders and Christians. Yes, that went on. Yes, there were Muslims <laughs> battling Christians. Yes, of course. But there was also, there are also all the Christians who, who fought with Osman. And there also were all the bizarre beliefs and practices of those Muslims around Osman. And all of that is reduced. They, they take this one incredibly important radical Muslim thinker, Ibn Arabi, and they turn him into what could be a, a Friday preacher in, um, in, in Ankara today. Mm. That's mad. Um, the first sultan is Murad I, isn't it? So how do we get from the four castles and the maraudering sort of out into the, the nearby area and conquering anyone who's in front of you? How do we get from that to the idea of a sultan? But there's a lot of a lot of different explanations have been offered, and I think all of them are partially true. Mm. So on the one hand, you have pure luck. Yeah, I think that's okay. As a historian, do you think that's okay as a historian? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like things don't fall into place. We don't end up with the stories we have, and sometimes it is insane just how lucky people are to get to the top, isn't it? 
Yeah, so the Ottomans are lucky in that the Seljuks, this other Turkish Muslim empire to their east, falls apart at a certain point early on. And they're lucky in that the Mongols also around 1350 begin their retreat and begin to fall apart and lose their hold over Anatolia. So that's happening in the east. The Ottomans. I are have there. to ask you, have you seen the David collection in Copenhagen? I just got back from there and no, I went no. and it was incredible. It was this mad Danish guy who collected a phenomenal amount of early Islamic stuff from mm. all three of those places. Like there's a 13th century Mongol tunic. There's stuff going all the way up into the early Ottoman period into the 16th century. And he just collected the living daylights uh, of the region. And it's in his old house and it's free. And it was one of the most incredible collections of art, Islamic art I've ever seen in my life. It was amazing. Wow. Have you seen the new Islamic wing at the British Museum? I haven't, no. That I would put a plug in for here. Everyone should go back into London after these lockdowns are over and go go to the British Museum and look at the new Islamic gallery. There they have Mongol ceramic ware and they have all incredible, um, incredible aspects of this time period we're talking about, different artifacts. So part of it is luck, part of it is chance, part of it is what's happening. Also the Byzantines, you had mentioned earlier the Byzantines suffered from the Crusades. It's absolutely right. The Crusaders launched their crusade from Western Europe in, what is it, 1204? And what do they do? They sack Constantinople. And, you know, the Byzantines don't really recover from that. So, and they occupy, and so for 50 years. So this is right before the Ottomans are coming along. Right. Byzantines thereafter are split into, well, the civil wars going on. And the Byzantines would invite the Ottomans, different sides in that ongoing Byzantine civil war would invite the Ottomans in to fight for their side. So this is another factor that helps the Ottomans move into Europe. There also was an earthquake. There was a massive earthquake in Gallipoli, um, you know, the Dardanelles. This also helps the Ottomans move west into Europe. So all these factors are important. There's also, of course, the, the economic factors. The Ottomans set themselves up, those four castles, that, that northwestern region is, is perfectly situated astride the, the major roads linking east and west, north and south. They also, the Ottomans, again, also seem to be although we're not entirely sure about this, they seem to be more spared from the plague than their other Turkic rivals. Now, we don't have all the evidence from the Ottoman area, but the evidence we have from the coast, from the, there were other Turkic principalities or small chieftainships, whatever we want to call them, on the west coast of Anatolia, what is today Turkey, they're all stricken by the plague, just as the Byzantines are. So that also helps the Ottomans uh, when their rivals are being weakened. These are all factors. Another factor we like to talk about is this something you mentioned a minute ago, this this having relations with the people around them and being very clever in uh, allying with, befriending different Christian princes or Armenian princes or Turkic uh, leaders. And then when the Ottomans were stronger than going against them. So even Osman, there's the story I mentioned in the book how he wanted to take over a particular castle, one of these castles, and that there was a, a wedding going on in the castle. 
and they invited Osman. So the Ottomans go into the castle like a Trojan horse. It's kind of like a Trojan horse story, along with their gifts of cheese and butter from their, their nomadic animals there. They also, and, and their carpets that they, they had woven, they hid warriors on these carts of gifts. These warriors also probably dressed as women, it seems, uh, from the Ottoman stories. And so when they were allowed into the castle, then they jumped out and attacked and, and killed the guards and killed the king and, and took over that, that castle. So, so it's all these different reasons. The Ottomans were able to step by step over the course of, of, of a century, let's say from 1300 to 1400, were able to begin to build what became the empire. So Murad I, what do we know about him? Let's go, oh, yes, absolutely. You're, you asked about Murad I. It seems that he's the first one to call himself Sultan, yeah. which, which is a change in consciousness. Yeah, it, he's not just a chief. He's not just a bey is a Turkish word. He's not just a lord, a frontier lord. He's actually, when he calls himself Sultan, he's saying he's the big secular king or authority or ruler in the area. So it's a bigger perspective. Murad also in, um, instills these different policies that also would contribute to the Ottomans' rise and um, glory. So one of, these, one of the things we, we attribute to him is his organization of the first Janissary um, units. And Janissary is the English word from a Turkish phrase meaning new army or new soldiers. So Murat takes these prisoners of war that were captured and he makes them into his loyal following. These were Christians. So he takes captured Christians and they're converted to Islam and they're circumcised and they're taught Turkish and all that. And, and these would be, the, the idea was that these people would be trustworthy. And what they began to do was, at first they may have started with prisoners of war, which were grown men, but very quickly, they would begin to take children from Christian villages and cities. So they were young um, and they would take the children and again, they would convert them to Islam, they would teach, the, teach them Turkish, and they would train them in the different arts based on their mental and physical capabilities. Their and standing is kind of similar to the Vatican Guard, isn't it? They're like an elite chosen ones. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Absolutely. These would be the elite. Um, these would become the infantry corps. These would be the ones that had, um, you know, weapons. Um, this would be a secret to Ottoman success for a couple of centuries. The guns uh, that these these janissaries would use, um, this would enable enable them to make further conquests into the 16th century in the Middle East because these other armies, the Safavids, the Mamluks, initially did not have gunpowder weapons. This is part of it. Um, so, so Murad I is creating this group, this loyal core. The idea is that they're taken as children, they're taken away from their mothers, taken away from their families, their villages, they're taught to be completely loyal to the Sultan, who is like their new father. And hundreds of thousands of boys were taken in this fashion over the course of three or more centuries, three and a half centuries. So savage, isn't it? Well, I don't know if I would use the, the word savage, but um, in mod modern considerations, it's savage. I'm just going to go and take everybody's children and turn it into, turn them into fanatical soldiers. 
Well, if you, if you look at the UN Convention on Genocide, um, this is actually one of the practices that in 1948, the, the UN determined is genocide. When you take children from a subject population and you take them away and you uh, convert them and um, you take them away from their natal community and you change them. This is actually an act of genocide. Of course, the Do we know how they saw it. Did they see it obviously as a hideous act or as it, um, God, was it like a, an honor to have your child taken or is it, do we not know? Well, we have a lot of, we have a lot of accounts from mm. Serbs and Greeks and other peoples. And we have a lot of, of course, um, laments, um, yeah. of course, saying, you know, we've, you know, these people, they come, they come, they conquer us. And the worst thing they do to us is that they take our children. Mm. Um, they take our children and then they have them worship their, um, their God, right? So Christians at the time believed that Muslims did not believe in the same God. Of course, uh, Christians, Jews, Muslims all pray to the same God, yeah. but they believed that uh, Islam was not a valid religion. Obviously, they believed only Christianity was a valid religion. It's like a modern upstart in their minds. It's only been around for a couple of hundred years, hasn't it? Uh, well, yeah, 500 but, years. It's so, 500 years less than Christianity. Okay, so so that so we have all these laments, and and there's no question that um, um, massive numbers of Christian boys were taken, mm. um, and there's no question about that. But we also have we also have some accounts, not accounts, but we have the practice of some families who actually saw it as maybe a chance for survival, or maybe as a chance as a way to get ahead. So if their son was taken and went to the palace, and this is in later centuries, and would not be a member of the Janissaries, but would be a member of the administration and would rise up to the Grand Vizier level, which is equivalent to prime minister perhaps, then that son of theirs could do good things in return for their village and for their church. And we have examples of this in the 16th century. There was a Grand Vizier who was a Christian who was um, taken in this way but then he appointed his brother as head of one of the Orthodox churches. And he also, um, you know, built a, a lavish bridge, this famous bridge in the former Yugoslavia. Um, this was, you know, this was in a sense, giving back to his natal land. So they never forgot their natal, natal land. So it's, so it's um, on the whole, it's a negative practice, but then there were families who saw it as a way to get ahead. And there were individuals who saw a way, they who still remembered their homeland and still in a way served their families and even their church, even though they themselves were Muslim. Uh, can I chuck a really random question in there? You mentioned this, that the soul, taking the title of Sultan is evolving sort of the way they see themselves. Is there a parallel with obviously in the West and with kings, we have the divine right of kings and they see themselves as an instrument of God and put there by God. Is that the same for the Sultan? Does that become um, a, a view of the person given the job? It's going to, it's going to change um, in every century. Mm -hmm. um, so I mean, Sultan is just a, it's just a term. It just means really just the secular leader. In yeah. other words, just the, and the Ottomans had no claim to, you know, they, they did not descend from the Prophet Muhammad. So they could never, they could never claim that was the reason they were in power. Mm. They also did not descend from Genghis Khan, the great Mongol ruler. Other, other dynasties further east 
could claim one or the other and then you know gain legitimacy that way. The Ottomans couldn't. The Ottomans could only, they came to power. They took power, they were in power, they had the best military, defeated their enemies. So they had to justify why they were there. And again, it's going to change. Uh, it's going to change in every century. But um, one of the things, one of the claims that was continuous was the claim that, well, the Ottomans are in power, yes, they're there to ensure justice in the world, that justice reigns. And so well, what do they mean by justice? They're going to impose um, the morality and the laws that have emerged from Islamic societies, but also the secular understanding of government that has come from Middle Eastern societies, Islamic societies, and Central Asian Mongol societies. So they're going to impose justice based on religious and secular law. And so long as they do that, they can earn the, 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 the trust and the, the support of the people they rule over, if that answers your question. It does. I, I love this. This is so fun. Uh, I mean, the divine right of kings. I mean, there, there will be sultans such as Suleiman in the 16th century, where his writers, people around him, people in his court would say that, well, he, ha he was divine. Yeah, because like, I've seen examples throughout history where, no, they don't have that direct link to the Mongols or to the prophet, and yet they just make one up anyway because who's going to challenge them? They're in charge. But it's interesting that in, in the period we're talking about at the beginning, they don't. They don't need to. They're just in charge, and that's how it is. They don't, they don't need to, to have a divine claim. That will, that will emerge in the mid-16th century when they are truly a global world Maybe not global, but they're a world empire uh, uniting East and West, and, and their claims will grow accordingly under Suleiman. Um, but then this, this, will, this will change again, and, and the divine claims will be channeled into different directions. But Murad, Murad, you're interested in Murad. You keep you. In, in your, <laughs> we, we've not done him yet, have we? Not done with Murad. You want to know all about Murad. I mean, Murad, the other thing, along with the. Um, recruiting Christian boys as the elite Janissary Corps. The other thing that Murad I is known for is instituting, well, how do we put a, how do we put a nice spin on this? We don't need to, we're honest historians, fratricide as a practice of succession. Oh, wow. So this is Murad I who, who we think, I mean, as from everything we know, he's the one who insists that, that the person the man who will take power will be the, the, the strongest, the most capable amongst all the sons of the Sultan. So Murad begins to send sons out to the provinces to, um, to serve as governors, more or less, to have, have courts in the provincial towns. In their, these are places, um, provinces that they've conquered from other Turkic um, peoples in what is today Turkey. And they, he sends them out with their mother, because they're young, to train them to be future leaders. And when the sultan dies, the, the, the custom is, and it'll become law as well for the Ottomans, custom and law is that the sons then have to race to the capital to, to seize the throne. And the way this happens is, of course, they're going to they're gonna have to fight their brothers. You know, the brothers are in different provincial capitals. They're going to have to battle it out. And once one is enthroned, 
then they will continue the bloodletting, um, perhaps uncles, perhaps you know, any male who might threaten their rule, they will have them killed as well, whatever age they are, from infants to old men. So Murad, Murad the first is the one to do this. I mean, imagine, imagine the situation. So I come from the US originally. Imagine the Bush family. You may not want to think about the Bush family, but we had Herbert Walker Bush Sr., right? Bush Sr. was president. He had a son who was the governor of Florida, had a son who was the governor of Texas. Let's suppose, I know it's crazy, but let's suppose. <laughs> that they rush to Washington and fight to the death. Yeah, Bush dies, Bush <laughs> Sr. dies. And now the army of Florida and the army of Texas battle it out in Oklahoma with George, the head of one army, and what's the other one's name? Um, Jeb at the head of the other army. And George wins. George then kills Jeb on the battlefield, hopefully. He has all of Jeb's sons killed. And then he goes to Washington as, and is enthroned as. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is better than Game of Thrones, isn't it? Yeah, now, in England, here in England, we had, we had the War of the Roses, which weren't very pleasant. So, so, you know, so the Ottomans aren't that different. It's yeah. just that it was legalized. It was predictable. It was, we knew this was going to happen each time. This was, this was what happened. And, and, and they carried this out until the 17th century. Bonkers. So we um, have Murad the first to thank for that. <laughs> We've been talking, we have briefly mentioned it already. One of my favorite books is Roger Crowley's account of the siege of Constantinople in 1450s. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Great, which I absolutely love. How have you approached this watershed moment in your book? That's a that's a that's a good question. I I again I was asked to write a history of the of the dynasty. Mm. So so I I focus on um, especially in these early centuries when the sultans were important in terms of making decisions and innovations that had an impact. Later on, the sultans would become less important. Mm. There would be a government institution, and later in the book, you you can see a switch where I focus more on the government and less on the individual leaders, but. Mehmed II 
is, is a very important figure. I approach him as a, as a human being, as a, as a 21-year-old lad who has you know, the weight of the world on his shoulders. What's interesting for me is we think about this geographical divide and that the Ottoman Empire is the beginning of the East always. But he's a Renaissance prince. We'd recognise in him traits that we see in, God help us, the likes of Henry VIII, wouldn't we? Oh, absolutely. And here, here in London, you go to, again, you go to the V&A, the Victorian Albert Museum, and you can see a Renaissance, in the Renaissance rooms, there's a portrait of Mehmed II. And, you, and, and visitors ask, well, what's it doing there? But it's a perfect Renaissance portrait in, in, in terms of who the author was and the perspective given and everything that it, it tells us. There are also medallions that were struck there, just like any other um, Italian Renaissance figure. Mehmed II is absolutely a Renaissance figure. But I approach him as a, as a human being. I mean, think about this, this guy. So his father, Murad II, was the first sultan to willingly to abdicate the throne. We don't know why. We don't know why. It could have been for spiritual reasons. He may have wanted to, to you know, contemplate the meaning of life. Um, he was influenced by the Sufis, the mystics around him. Um, we don't know. It could have been he also enjoyed his wine. There could have been you know, something connected to that. But anyway, he abdicates and puts a young Mehmed. I forget his age, but he puts, he puts a young Mehmed on the throne. But then... Not long after that, um, his, the Janissaries want Murad II to return. They don't want to go into battle with Mehmed II. And so Murad then dethrones his son and takes over again um, for a while. So, so to think of this young man who's enthroned at a young age with all the awesome power and responsibility that, that comes with it, but then kicked out again. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then he comes back to power Finally, when his, you know, when his father passes away, and now he's, you know, he's got a chip on his shoulder. I think he wants to prove himself to his father, um, his deceased father. He wants to prove himself to the Janissaries. And so he's 21. Um, and he also wants to do something that you know, Muslims have been trying to do since the time of Muhammad, which is to conquer Constantinople. So I approach him that way. And when I look at the conquest, I also look at, again, I look at, you know, individuals do have, can have a huge impact on history. And, and he had, you know, he had brilliant ideas about how to conquer the city from building a fortress on the European side um, um, at the narrowest place of the, of the Bosphorus, also to dragging part of his navy overland uh, to avoid a large Byzantine chain, to put his navy into the Golden Horn right next to the walls of the Byzantine city. Um, and also having a, a convert, a Christian convert from Hungary, cast the largest cannon the world has ever seen to yes. smash the outer wall. So, so these, these are all really brilliant military moves that he celebrated in Turkey um, since the 1950s, since the, the, um, the anniversary of the, uh, of the 500th anniversary of the conquest. He celebrated as a great Turkish military figure. And yeah, in, in many ways he is. But Again, if you read the Ottoman sources, as I do, look at the, 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 the mentality of this, this, this young man. So they, they conquer the city. He lets his soldiers run wild, as was the custom in the world at the time, for a day, looting, raping, robbing, destroying, burning, trampling. He lets, then when he enters the city, 
he, he looks around and he says, my, what have we done? What have we done to this great city? And he's actually quite, he's quite melancholy. He's quite sad. And by the time, and he rides his white horse all the way to what is today, you know, what is Hagia Sophia, the Church of Divine Wisdom, right? This great, uh, what was at one time the biggest church in the world, the center of the Orthodox community. He rides his, his horse all the way through the city to Hagia Sophia. And he, again, according to his, his, um, his writers, they attribute to him saying, looking around, and reciting a couplet from Persian poetry, which is all about how fleeting life is and how, you know, kings come and go and they die and, you know, life is short. So at this moment of incredible achievement, right, the kind of thing that for 700, 800 years Muslims had wanted to do, conquering the great cathedral of Christendom, he's not celebratory. He's not boasting. He's not... You know, you know, smug. He's he's actually quite um, profoundly driven, um, profoundly disturbed in a way by by what it all means. By and when you read the accounts, some of the accounts, you you it makes you think about death. Uh, and I find this I find this um, so I approach him as a human being. Now, yeah. and you had asked about him being a Renaissance leader. You, you, would, you would also, you agree, he was also a Renaissance leader. And part of Renaissance culture was having mature men loving boys. This is part of Renaissance culture. It was part of Renaissance England. It, the, the, it's taken from the Greeks, isn't it? That's why they're doing it. What's the, yeah, that's right. It's the, it's the culture of pederasty. We have this in Renaissance England. We have this in Renaissance Florence, in Renaissance Italy, and not surprising, we have it in Renaissance Istanbul. So there's stories about Mehmed the Conqueror. After the conquest, he falls in love with a young Byzantine boy who is the, the son of one of the leading Byzantine families of the, of the, of the now defeated Byzantine Empire. And he, he longs for that boy and he, and he wants that boy um, in his palace. And again, you could imagine him being converted to Islam, being raised as a Muslim and maybe one day serving as his, his grand vizier. But the father refuses, absolutely refuses. Um, and actually it may be that um, the boy is killed so that he will not be given to Mehmed II as an object of his love and as a future um, in, uh, administrator in the empire. So that's also another element. And Mehmed II wrote poetry as these sultans did. And he wrote love poetry in which he expresses longing for Christian boys. Mm. And, and this is something that's completely silenced um, by modern historians. It's right there. It's, if, you just, if you read his poetry, there it is staring you in the face. But modern people you know, find this uncomfortable. In this country too, I mean, we, when we talk about the Renaissance, we tend to skip the 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 act of sexuality and and yeah don't even get me started our whole like but i do the window philosophy our job is to open as many different windows as many different views onto the past as we can because the more windows you've got the better view you've got of what's on the other side right in my book it's not our job to close because we don't like particular windows i agree nobody likes shifts in power especially if they're the ones that have it 
Um, well, obviously the people that wouldn't like them. So what kind of opposition does the Ottoman Empire face as it expands? One of the, one of, you asked me also at the beginning, what's new about the book? Yeah. And one of the themes of the book is the internal threats to the dynasty. So of course the Ottomans, they have to defeat the Byzantines. They have to defeat, in order to expand and to protect themselves, they have to defeat rivals in the East, such as the Safavid Empire in, in what is today Iran, which emerges in the 16th century, to expand South, to take the holy places of Islam in Syria and Saudi Arabia. They have to defeat the Mamluk Empire, another Sunni Muslim Turkic Empire in the South. Absolutely, there are these external rivals in their immediate neighborhoods. But in the book, along with that, I also talk about the internal danger posed by radical Sufis, by radical Muslim mystics. In every age, the Ottomans are, the Ottoman dynasty has a fine balance between gaining the, the blessings and the support of these radical dervishes for their, maybe their ability to intervene with the divine on the behalf of the dynasty, at the same time, these radical Sufis are also they're leading revolts against the dynasty. They are saying that their leaders, and we, we have this throughout the history, they say that their spiritual leaders should be sitting on the throne, uh, not only figuratively, but the Sultan should be, uh, you know, has no right to be there. Um, their men are men of God and they should be there. So, so this is something I, I mentioned in the book that throughout these, not only in the early centuries, but until the empire's end, there are radical Sufis who are trying to assassinate sultans, who are leading massive revolts in, in what is today Turkey against the sultan. So this, this, is a, this is something that's new about the book. Is, is it's not just about the Ottomans facing outside, defeating their Turkish and Muslim rivals, you know, facing off against Venice in the Eastern Mediterranean and so on. But it's also about how they gain control over the people they rule. Brilliant. We've mentioned Suleiman I quickly, but let's talk about, so he's the first Ottoman Caliph. This is another step up, isn't it? For the absolute layman in the history of this region, can you explain who he was and what this means for the empire? Well, a Caliph, and also people are, may wonder what Caliph is, what, what, the, what Caliph means. Caliph is, a, whereas Sultan is really a secular, secular word, for the, the, the ruler, simply the, the ruler of a kingdom, the secular ruler. Caliph, the idea behind the caliphate is that there's, there is a Muslim who is the ruler, the spiritual ruler of all Sunni Muslims. It's a Sunni concept. Um, so the Ottomans conquer um, the Mamluk, defeat the Mamluk Empire under Selim in 1516, 1517. 1517. And the caliph, the, the, the descendants of the caliphs that go all the way back to early Islamic history, to the Abbasid Caliphate in the eighth century, the, their descendants were in Cairo. So the Mamluks were sort of protecting, supporting the caliphs, although they didn't really have any power. But the caliph, the idea of the caliph is a Sunni uh, Muslim religious figure, a spiritual figure, who, who um, is supposed to have this authority over all Muslims. So it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a position that had much power 
after the Abbasid Caliphate had ended um, in the, before the year 1000. But the, anyway, the Mamluks had the actual descendants of the Caliphs. And when Selim conquered Cairo, he sent all these leading people back to Istanbul, including the Caliph, the actual man who was the descendant. So the Ottomans, you can say, capture the Caliphate, literally, when they conquer the Mamluks. They send this man back to Istanbul. But Selim, um, it seems, from what, what I've read, didn't, did not call himself Caliph. Mm. His son, Suleiman, however, from everything I've read, was the first Ottoman Sultan who says, actually, actually, I'm the Caliph. I am the legitimate spiritual leader of all the Sunni Muslims in the world. This was a big claim, right? Suleiman had a lot of big claims. There were right, there were people around him who thought he was the Messiah. Well, thought, this, is, this yeah. is moving into the same kind of territory, isn't it, as Henry VIII, which is the, the monarch as the head of church and state, as opposed to before where you were saying that they didn't make these claims. They didn't, didn't need to. Yeah, it's more similar. It's more similar to that. That's right. Tell us about the Ottoman age of discovery, because you... Can you squash kind of awful stereotypes associated with this? Particularly, uh, this is one that you pointed out. People complaining that if the Ottomans were that great, why did they never find, in funny quotes, the Americas? Right. The answer is they didn't need to. Mm. Because the world's wealth and the world's uh, everything was in the East. So um, all the riches of the world were in the Islamic world, in what is today in South Asia, what is today India and Pakistan, and also in China. So why would they sail west when they wanted the goods of the east? Well, that's the answer right there. So the, the Portuguese and the Spanish were trying to avoid the Ottoman middleman and tried to sail first east, but then eventually they got lost. Columbus was lost, right? Columbus mm. was lost. They, what they were trying to do was to bypass the Ottomans and to, in order to, because the Ottomans were not monopolizing, but the Ottomans had a great share of the trade from the East. So these rising Western European um, kingdoms wanted to take a share of that wealth from the East um, without having to wait for the, the, the goods to be shipped over land or by sea. Um, so that's, that's what it was. It was economic competition. But there was more to that. Columbus also was thought he could wage, a, well, a holy war of sorts, because he thought that there was a hidden Christian kingdom somewhere in the east. And if he went east, then he would link up with that kingdom. And from the east, they could then defeat the Ottomans and take over Jerusalem um, and convert it to well, at the time, Jerusalem was not controlled by the Ottomans. It was controlled by the Mamluks. But again, uh, take Jerusalem from uh, Muslim power for Christianity. One of our pub regulars, we have our own pub, um, Heather actually took him apart, Columbus, as a complete dick uh, just a couple of weeks ago. So perhaps it's good that there's no Ottoman equivalent of Christopher Columbus wreaking havoc on the world. Can you tell us anything about the women in the first half of the dis dynasty? How hard are they to wheedle out of the sources? Well, you, I mean, you had asked about the Ottomans wreaking havoc. I mean, the, yeah. havoc, the havoc comes, of course, in yeah. the end of empire in the 20th century mm. when the, the, the regime 
uh, turns on its own people and commits genocide against the Armenians. So, so you know, we, you know, we, we can't. We, that's why the book is about all of Ottoman history. It's from the beginning to the end because we have to try to understand all of these elements of tolerance and genocide, of glory and what's the opposite of glory? I don't know, ignominy. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's so that's what what is also different about this book is that. I look at the whole of Ottoman history and I don't just write about, let's say, the glorious earlier centuries or the, at times, dismal, but other times glorious later centuries. Mm. But you asked about women. How do women fit into the story? The women are important to the dynasty. I had mentioned earlier that the princes were sent out to the provinces as governors and they were usually young men, young, quite young. They could be quite young. And so their mothers went with them and their mothers would, in a sense, raise them um, to be sultans. And they would advise them who to trust, which advisors to trust and, and make a lot of decisions for them. And then the mothers, it was the mother's duty to, to keep their son alive and to have their son defeat all his rivals and make it back to the capital to be Enthroned. So, so women, especially in those earlier centuries, that the royal women, the mothers of sultans, had a huge political role to play, and that's also something that's that um, is important to to think about as well in the early centuries, especially. Yeah, are they? If you were to compare women in the first half of the Ottoman Empire, are they as marginalized out of history and sources and things as women in the Western world, or do they come out better off? Well, I think we've had we've had some really important studies about women in the in the in the palace. Uh, we've had fewer less research about you know non-elite women um, and the role of women in, in everyday Ottoman society. But I would say that um, well, I'm just trying to think about um, that the first half versus the second half because by the 17th century, um, women would play a huge role. In mm. politics, when we had sultans who were minors and sultans who were mentally unwell, and sultans who um, who were um, yeah incapacitated in different ways, so the mothers were regents and they were really quite ruling behind the scenes. Now it's it's different than in other European countries in that no Ottoman sultana was ever the ruler in her own right. You think of Catherine the Great or, so so at no point was a woman publicly, openly the ruler of the empire. But in the 16th, but especially early 17th century, behind the scenes, women, royal women were de facto, in many ways, the ruler, telling um, their son where to build fortresses and when to wage war and, and who to appoint as minister and so on incredible so to finish off in two and a half centuries this frontier backwater has become uh, they've conquered a huge part of the world you mentioned luck what do you think are the other keys to this well some of these 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 great policies i mean great in terms of state building if not for the subjects concerned so the you know the collection in other words the the levy of young boys was a, a clever decision. Another f- factor, the Mongols had always divided up their empire by giving different areas to the, the sons. Mm. So what, would hap- what happened in the great empire, the great Mongol empire then broke up 
into these different mini, not mini, they're quite large as well, but these other empires. So there's a constant fragmentation. Yeah, as opposed the, to the Ottomans slaughtering each other to take the whole lot. Yeah, because, I mean, they were still using the Mongol idea of sending the sons out to rule part of the empire. Mm. But then they, the Ottomans you know, had this concept of a unitary empire. And that was clever. That was brilliant. That worked. The, the, just as collecting the boys, just as technological advancements, using the latest weapons technology, this helped them for a couple centuries until the rest of Europe caught up with the technology. So, so these were aspects. Another aspect I mentioned too was this sort of this pragmatism, really. So let's say um, Spain is kicking out its Jews. So the Ottomans see this as an opportunity and they allow perhaps as many as 100,000 Spanish and Portuguese Jews to enter the empire. And from these Spanish and Portuguese Jews then, they learn all the latest, I mean, this is one avenue through which they learn the latest technology um, of the West in different, in different air, printing, for example. The Jews bring the printing press to the Ottoman Empire and are allowed to start printing books in the 15th century. So, so the Ottomans were practical and they were open. Again, this goes against a, top, um, a stereotype of the Ottomans. They were open to innovation in every century. And so, and they, they kept changing. They are, kept changing their form of government. Don't have time to talk about that. They kept changing their approach to Islam. Um, so, so they're constantly changing, constantly open to, um, to innovations. And they experimented with different elements of government and the army and so on. Now these the experiments they undertook in the 19th century didn't work and yeah. led to collapse, but that's a different, that's a different talk. It is. Uh, Mark, the plan for this was to uh, tell everybody the first half so they'd run out and buy the book. Let's give them a few weeks to do that. But then this has been amazing. Will you come back and do the second half and we can talk all about government, the Balkans, Russia and the collapse and the genocide and everything that comes in the second half of the Ottoman Empire? Yeah, I may. I may. I appreciate your um, your very engaged uh, your interest in the Ottomans. You know, when I started looking at Ottoman history 30 years ago, there wasn't as much interest as there is today. Yeah. Maybe these, these, these television, these horrible television series get, get people excited to learn about the Ottomans. They do. I started learning Turkish three weeks ago on Duolingo wow. so okay. that I can use Turkish First World War, First World War sources as well. Um, but at the moment, all I can do is ask you if you have any bread or water. And I think I can say hello and goodbye. That's it. But thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. The book is available via the History Hack online bookshop. Do go out and buy it. It's absolutely fabulous. It's worth it in Britain. Apparently, it's a different cover in America. It's worth it just to be able to put that cover somewhere and show off when people come around your house because it's stunning. Well, thank you very much. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.